Hey, so we all know that Jesus said some wonderful world-changing things during his time on earth, right? Even if you're not super religious, you're familiar with much of what he taught. You probably know his words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You probably remember him saying, judge not so that you will not be judged. You probably have heard that he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what it is that they're doing. But this morning, can we read one of the weirdest things Jesus ever said? Yeah, can we read something that's like, well, I'm sorry, he said, what exactly? I need to warn you, this teaching from Christ is actually pretty far out there, okay? Some of you guys are going to find it confusing. Some of you are going to find it offensive and distasteful. Are you sure you really want to hear it? Okay. There are a few of you guys that are like, now I'm not so sure. I thought maybe I did, but you built it up. Okay. Let me set the stage for you a little bit here. Okay. This um, very interesting and difficult thing that Jesus taught happens in John chapter number six. In John chapter number six, there was a group of people that came up to Jesus one day and they said to him, if you're really from heaven, if you are come down from God, give us a sign so that we can believe you. Just like God gave the ancient Israelites the sign of man in the wilderness, like he miraculously provided bread to our ancestors when they left Egypt. Give us a sign so that we can believe that you are really from God. In response, in John chapter number six, Jesus launches into a teaching that is often referred to as the bread of life sermon, the bread of life sermon. And it's within this particular uh, talk or message that he gives that Jesus says something that the people listening to him were not ready for. They were not prepared for this and it really rocked their faith as a result. So let's take a look at it. John chapter number six. We're going to read a lengthy passage from the Bible today, but we're going to break it up into chunks and it'll be here on the screen for you to follow as well. John chapter number six, beginning in verse 47 from the New Living Translation. This is what Jesus says in response to those people who asked for a sign. He says, I tell you the truth, Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. So far, so good. It's like, yeah, this is, this sounds like the Jesus that I know, right? Your ancestors ate manna. Manna was this miraculous bread that God provided. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. Okay. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Verse 52, the people began to argue with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living father who sent me in the same way. Anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did. Even though they ate the manna, this person will live forever. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did he just invite the crowd to drink his blood and to eat his body? That's nuts, right? And you can understand why the people listening to him that day were like, 
uh, I'm sorry, I don't like this. I'm going home, okay? For many of them, this was probably the first time they had any real interaction with Jesus. First time they ever showed up to listen to him preach. They had heard that he taught these wonderful things and then they got this. They're like, no, 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 this ain't for me. This guy's nuts. And they went on about their way. That response certainly makes sense for people who were relationally removed from Jesus. People who didn't really know him, didn't have any connection to him, but the scriptures tell us they're not the only ones that had an issue with the things that Jesus taught in the bread of life sermon. Go on to uh, verse number 60. In verse 60, the scripture says, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Now, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. And so he said to them, does this offend you? The very words I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but some of you do not believe me. Then I want you to notice verse 66. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and they deserted him. You know, as we continue this tear it down series, we're talking about questioning your faith without losing it. As we, as we continue with this series, one of the things that's really important for us to keep in mind is that people have been questioning and deconstructing their faith since the very beginning. <laughs> this is not new to the 21st century. This is not something that youth group kids from the 90s and 2000s are struggling with. People have been dealing with this for millennia, all right? And like we said last week, uh, this process of questioning your faith, the things you've been taught, deconstructing to, to make sure that you, what you believe and what you live actually lines up with the teachings of Christ is not a bad thing in and of itself. In fact, if you do it well, deconstruction can actually leave you with with a stronger faith. You will have a more stable foundation. You will believe more confidently in God than ever before. But if you don't do deconstruction well, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about what it means to not do it well. If you don't do it well, it can actually lead to you losing your faith all together. All right. So what we want to keep in mind is that uh, in, in John chapter number six, these people that came to Jesus and they're asking for a sign, I want you to understand this. They were not looking for a reason not to believe. Are you with me on this? They weren't, they didn't show up doubting. They didn't show up skeptical. They didn't show up anti-Jesus. In fact, when they came, if we assume that their request for a sign was made in good faith, they're actually asking for greater evidence, more confidence, deeper belief. They actually want to be even more certain that Jesus is come from God. They are seeking more clarity, more understanding, and even a deeper faith. The problem is something occurred in this passage that they were not prepared for. They didn't have a category for the things that Jesus was going to say to them. This trigger hit them out of left field. They came across a teaching that they weren't ready for, and it caused them to freak out. And actually it says many of them walked away. Now, in my conversations with people whose faith is crumbling, people who are either beginning or who have gone through this deconstruction process, it always begins just like this. These people are not anti-Jesus. They don't hate the faith. 
They're not looking for a reason to leave. Many of them are happily walking with Jesus and they get blindsided by a question that they've never considered before. Or they have some horrible experience within the church or within a faith community. And what ends up happening is that their their faith and their, their belief in God ends up being upended as a result of that experience. Many of you, have had this experience yourself, haven't you? You, you? you had something that occurred, a trigger, a catalyst for deconstruction, and it might have begun as like a small crack in the facade of your faith that just widened over time. Now you can't ignore it because the whole foundation is crumbling. Or it might be that you encountered something that was like a grenade chucked into your belief system, and in an instant, everything was completely demolished. Everybody who goes through a deconstruction process does so because they experience some trigger or catalyst that causes them to doubt and question the things that they've always believed. Now, there are typically four things, four issues that, in my experience, lead people to begin to tear down their faith. And I want to put all four of them here on the screen. We'll talk about them here uh, for just a moment individually, all right? The first are theological issues. There are people that have theological questions. They have theological problems. And for them, this, this is the beginning of tearing it all down. So perhaps it's trying to wrap your brain around the Trinity. You're like, I just cannot make sense out of this. Or you're trying to make sense of the doctrine of election, right? Predestination. Last week, I invited you all to send me your questions about the faith. And the number one question I received was on the subject of election and predestination. Could be the exclusivity of Christ. You're like, I'm sorry, Christians believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. Yep. And for many people that becomes a a hindrance, an issue, and it makes them want to walk away from their faith. Or it could be the existence of 10,000 different Christian denominations. Like, why do we need 10,000 different kind of Christian churches here, right? For many people, that division and that fracturing of the Christian faith, it it gives them a fear that maybe this is all man-made. Or it's at least man-led. Because y'all can't agree on anything. You will divide your church over anything possible. The color of the carpet, you know, an interpretation of this verse, doesn't even matter. So there can be these theological issues that seep in or creep up, pop up, and they can cause us to begin to question what we've always believed. The second are moral issues. Moral issues. So you might be unsettled by some of the violence or misogyny that you read in the Old Testament, or even throughout church history. It could be that your faith is rocked by instances of abuse in the modern church. It could dawn on you just how wildly different the Bible's sexual ethic is from sex and sexuality as we conceive of it in the 21st century. These are all moral issues. And over time, we start to wrestle with these and we're like, I don't know, is this good? Is this right? Should I believe this? Should I hold on to this? Or should I let it all go? Then there are logical issues. These are like potential contradictions in the Bible, uh, the unscientific nature of miracles. Uh, and, and you know what I think is one of the most common logical issues that people have with faith today, uh, although they would never frame it this way. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. They, they have given in to what we could call a postmodern rejection of absolute truth. So the Bible offers what it claims is absolute truth. There is a God. 
and Jesus came to die for our sins. And the only way you can be saved is to freely accept his mercy and grace on your behalf, right? There is absolute truth, right and wrong as presented in the Christian faith. But in our world today, we have given over into a philosophy called postmodernism and postmodernism says there is no absolute truth that everybody has their own truth. My truth, your truth, your truth's not any better than mine and vice versa. Their truth is not any better than ours. So we can't, we can't know anything certainly and we definitely can't force anybody to make any changes in their life, right? So we have these logical issues that can lead us to question and doubt and begin to tear apart our faith. And then finally we get to relational issues, probably the easiest to understand. This is when someone who claims the name of Christ hurts us. Maybe intentionally or perhaps unintentionally. It might be a mistake. It could be an accident. They might just let you down in some way. And you're like, but you're my pastor. Why weren't you there? This was supposed to be my sister in Christ. How could she do this to me, right? We have these relational wounds that hurt us. Any and all of these can be the catalyst for deconstructing your faith, theological, moral, logical, and relational issues. In fact, you guys, we actually see each one of these issues very clearly here in John chapter number six. If you pay attention You'll notice that the crowd in verse 42 has a theological issue that they raise. When Jesus says, I am the bread that's come down from heaven, they're like, um, isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? Didn't homie grow up in Nazareth? Like he didn't, how could he say he came down from heaven? That's a theological issue. They're saying, you're a man, you claim to be God. What's going on here? They're raising theological issues in this passage. The disciples voice their logical issues in uh, verse number 60. They're like, this is a hard saying. Who can make sense out of this? What is this man even talking about? I cannot make heads or tails of it. There's the moral issue with the crowd that they raise when they're like, is this guy telling us to drink his blood? You can almost feel like their moral repulsion at this. You're like, ew, this is gross. What is he even talking about here? And then Jesus himself is going to raise the relational issue in verse 70. We'll read it in a moment. The way that he ends this entire message is by talking to the disciples. And he says, I chose you 12, but one of you is a devil. He's saying one of you is going to betray me. There is a relational hurt that's about to happen here. And Jesus is including that in all of these potential issues that cause people to uh, potentially lose their faith. So here's what I want to say. And uh, I hope you hear me. If you're in the process of deconstruction, if you are, you know, if, if you're on the early side of this, if you're at the end of it, like this is the last straw. You heard that there was a sermon series on deconstruction. And you thought if there is any hope of holding on to my relationship with Jesus, I'm going to go sit through it, see what that dude has to say. This is what I hope that you will hear me say. Okay. I don't think you're a bad person. I don't think you're a bad Christian. I don't think you're anti-Christ. In fact, deconstruction is usually an attempt to discover whether your faith is true and good. Yeah. That's what most people, listen, most people are trying to figure this out. Now, some people go through this process of deconstruction, eventually ends at deconversion. They just give up and walk away. Others go through the deconstruction process. They, they come to the conclusion that the faith is both true and good. And as a result, they have a more solid faith than ever before. Usually people are simply trying to figure out whether or not what they believe is both true and good. And it needs to be both. 
It's possible that the faith could be true, but not good. It's also possible that the faith could be good, but not true. We need it to be both. And I absolutely believe it is. So most people who deconstruct do so as a result of a trigger or a catalyst that they were not expecting. It comes out of left field. They feel all alone and isolated, and they don't know how to process either the questions that they're asking or the experiences that they've had. So let me ask you, if we put back on the screen, those four uh, triggers or catalysts for deconstruction, which of these issues do you wrestle with the most? Are your issues, questions, concerns, are they primarily theological? Are they moral? Are they intellectual? Or are they relational? Now, I understand everybody's got questions that fit into every one of these categories. I do. I do. However, the big ones will often fit into one or two categories. And so I'm curious for you, you don't have to turn to your neighbor. You're not going to shout it out to me or anything like that, but just acknowledge in your own heart today, hey, I struggle with the relational aspect of this because they let me down. And I don't know if I can ever heal from that. I struggle with the moral thing. I just don't know how a good God could do X, Y, or Z. No, mine's a theological one. Y'all keep telling me the brain can't comprehend all this stuff, but my brain needs to comprehend. I get it, okay? Then let me ask you, what steps have you taken to process your questions and experiences? See, I, I find many times people come up with these big questions about faith and life and existence, and they raise the question. They're frustrated because they don't have the answer, but they often really don't take any intentional steps to discover the answer or to heal from the trauma that they may have experienced in the past. They might assume it's hopeless or there is no answer. And so they never actually seek out the very things that are available to them that could keep them close to God instead of driving them away. I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. I have no idea how electricity works. This stuff is like black magic to me, you guys, okay? Like I flip the switch and my coffee brews, the lights come on or the government tells me to shut them off. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I have no clue how electricity works, but there are people who do. And I get to benefit from their experience. Right. And if I really wanted to learn, I could go to some of the electricians in our church and I could say, teach me this witchcraft and they would do it and I could learn and I could be better as a result of their expertise. There are so many people today who say, this is like, this is a, a foreign language to use John's language uh, wording. All right. This is a foreign, I can never make sense out of this. Yes, you can. There are answers to the questions that you seek. There are good answers to the questions you seek. I have some of them. I don't have a lot of them, but I will do everything I can to help you find the answers to the questions that you have to help you heal and process the, the tragedy and the trauma and the wounds that you might've experienced in spiritual communities before healing exists answers exist, but you're going to have to engage a little bit. It's not enough to merely raise the question and then say, I never found an answer. Did we look? There are a lot of people that don't actually look. We're doing everything we can 
to make it as easy as possible. So you don't have to look very hard in order to find the answers. This is part of the reason that we are making scripture reading just central to who we are as a community this year. We're doing absolutely everything we can to get as many of you guys engaged in the word as possible because it will provide so many of the answers that you're seeking. Very often the answers are there. We just don't ever bother to look for them. That's why we're doing 21 days of prayer right now. We are one week in to 21 days, three weeks of prayer. It's been incredible. Every single morning, Instagram and Facebook, go check our stories. There is a prayer prompt, a Bible study for you. It'll take you about three minutes, five minutes to do. This is designed to help you uh, engage your faith, to read the scriptures. You might even discover some answers to things that you've been curious about before. Every Wednesday night, for the next two Wednesday nights anyway. We're gathered right here at 7 p.m. in this room to pray and to worship together. You guys, we had such an incredible, powerful prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Like, it was so good. If you missed it, you missed it. I'm telling you, there are things that can only happen when you're in the room. God shows up in a way when you are gathered together with other believers that can, can bring about conclusion and resolution and peace and understanding and all of those different things. But you've got to lean in. You got to seek. The Bible says, seek and you will find. Yes knock and the door will be open to you. So I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying like, is if you raise the questions, but you never seek the answers, don't be surprised if you can't find the answers. Hey, can I challenge you yet again? Join our, our Bible reading group that's happening on the YouVersion Bible app. Every morning, like this is throughout the entire year, every weekday morning, there are like 50 or 60 of us right now that are reading the New Testament together. We read one chapter a day and then people post their questions and I give them my thoughts or other people chime in. People post their devotional reflections and it encourages me. And I'm like, oh, that's a good sermon idea. And so I write that down. I'm gonna be preaching your thoughts later on. I mean, it's great. It's free and it takes like 15 minutes a day. It's so easy. Oh, by the way, the, the scriptures from 21 days of prayer and the scriptures that we're reading in the Bible plan, they're from the same chapter. So you don't have to read two sections of scripture. It's all nicely together for you. If you'll go to connectcalgary.ca slash Bible slash Bible, you can navigate there from our website. But if you just put that in directly and then click the link that says, join our new Testament reading plan, you'll download the app, you'll join the reading plan. And this week you could be asking your questions about Matthew chapter number 12. All right. You're saying, ah, Dan, I don't know. It's already like January 14th. It's like, it's too late. Are you joking me? We're going to be going till December, baby. You got time to jump in. Okay. The point is we're doing everything we can to help you to answer your questions, to give you a safe space to process what you've been through so that you can come out the other side stronger in your faith. Okay, back to John 6. Jesus makes his teaching, eat my flesh, drink my blood. John chapter 6, verse 66 says at that point, uh, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. I just think it's kind of interesting that the only 666 verse in the Bible is people walking away from Jesus. We'll just leave that alone. It's a coincidence, but it's an interesting one. 
John chapter number six, verse 67. So the, uh, oh, I should, I should probably explain that just very, very briefly because that might confuse some of you, okay? Um, Jesus, he had concentric circles of relationships, okay? So there were people that were closer to him and then people that were kind of more distant or removed from him. In the same way that we all have besties and then we have work associates, you know, the, the third cousins that we see every few years. Jesus had these concentric circles of relationships. And so he had like three of his followers, James, uh, Peter, and John, who were like the inner circle. They were like his closest friends in the world. Beyond that, there was the group of 12, which includes like Matthew and Thomas and Bartholomew. Who the heck is Bartholomew? Nobody ever talks about him, right? And then beyond that, the scriptures tell us that there was actually a group of 120 disciples that follow him around. And historically, we've always believed that that group of 120 included men and women. It uh, most likely, or we think there's strong evidence that it could have included Gentile converts. So Jews who had become Jews, they weren't born Jews. So it was a wider circle of people. And it was this group of 120 that a, a significant number of them decided to leave. That's why in the next verse, verse 67, Jesus turned to the 12 and he asked, are you going to leave also? They didn't like it. They didn't want to handle it. And so they walked away. But I think Jesus' question here is really important because it's probably one that the Spirit is posing to somebody or somebody's in the room today. Are you going to leave also? Like you, you've seen a lot of people walk away from their faith through the years. Might be your friends, you know, like you, you went to school or you were in youth group with a whole bunch of kids and man, y'all were so passionate and on fire and you went to youth camp and conferences and you led on the worship team and all that. And they've all gone. They've given up. They've walked away. They, they have no relationship with God anymore at all. Could be that you have family members that used to be very sincere about their faith, but for whatever reason, they've abandoned it, given up on it. It might be uh, celebrities, you know, we have influencers and we put them up on a pedestal and then they make a big announcement like, oh, I'm giving up my, I'm, I'm divorcing and uh, I've decided I no longer believe in Jesus. And, you know, they kind of deconstruct and walk away. Could be pastors, there may be pastors that you know or pastors that you respect. You've, you've watched their ministry and listened to their messages. And then they make some really dumb decision and they blow up their life in ministry. And then they decide, you know what? I'm going to walk away from my faith entirely. We've all seen people walk away. So the spirit looks at us and says, okay, that was their choice. What's your choice? Will you walk away also? You can. And many of you have very valid reasons to consider walking away. If I had been through what some of you have been through, I might be gone too. If, if nobody had bothered to try to help me answer the questions that I had when I was new to the faith, I might not have stuck around either. But I think when Jesus asked this question to the disciples, he's not being morose. He's not like Eeyore, like, I guess you're going to leave me too. <laughs> I think he's given them an opportunity to recognize that just because people in your relational circle have lost their faith doesn't mean that you have to. Even if you're the last kid from your youth group that's still holding on. Even if your husband has decided he's done with this thing. Even if some celebrity pastor that had such an impact on your faith over the years decides to give it up 
walk away and build his own brand on the Oprah Winfrey network, okay? (laughs) Even if that happens, you can still remain. You can still retain a vibrant, robust, living, and personal faith in God through Jesus. Because what they do is between them and God. What you do is between you and God. Jesus gives them the opportunity and he very suddenly points out just because they walked away doesn't mean that you have to either. John chapter number six, verse 68 the disciples are going to respond. And as always, it's Peter. He's the spokesman of the group. He's always the first one to talk. And when Jesus says, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Then verse 70, Jesus said, yeah, but I chose the 12 of you. One of you is a devil. You don't even know how bad this is going to get yet. Still going to stick around? We'll see. Okay, I I love Peter's response here because his question to whom would we go really deserves consideration. See, when somebody deconstructs, when they deconvert, they aren't merely walking away from one thing. They are always walking towards something else. It's not possible to walk away from something and not walk towards a new thing. So if you're leaving your faith behind, what are you walking towards? Do you know? How confident are, how can you be confident that this new thing that you're walking towards is going to be better than the thing that you're leaving behind? How can you be sure that you're going to find more satisfaction out there than you ever did here? Because the truth is, it's always going to be frustrating no matter where you go. You're always going to have unanswered questions. You're always going to have people acting like knuckleheads. It exists everywhere. So when you walk away from something, you are walking towards something. And Peter says, where would we go where we would find something better than what we've experienced here? To whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. I think there's a lot of depth to that confession. I really do. I want you to notice he doesn't say, to whom would we go, Lord? You have the words that give us neat and clean answers. Thank you for making it so easy. (laughs) No, he doesn't say, you have the words that give earthly life. No, he says heavenly, eternal life. Jesus offers them something that they can't find anywhere else. Something that transcends basic human questions, transcends what any other worldview or life might offer. Eternal life is what he gives us. Now, I want you to pause for just a moment. Let's calibrate some expectations here, okay? If we're going to have conversations about the deepest mysteries of life and existence. If we're going to talk about the divine infinite, God himself, if we're going to have, uh, you know, questions and conversation about humanity and our destiny and morality, what humans ought or ought not to do, should we expect those to be easy conversations? Should we expect simple answers to those sorts of questions? I mean, if those, que- if those answers, simple answers existed... We would have already had them, but we don't. When we're talking about things that are so big, so deep, so mysterious and wonderful, it shouldn't surprise us when we don't have all the answers. It shouldn't surprise us that people will disagree, even to the point of forming 10,000 denominations, which is like still a little excessive in my opinion, but whatever, okay? It shouldn't surprise us 
that we have to work to come to a conclusion and find answers. There is no way that a finite brain will ever be able to fully comprehend an infinite God. There's no way that a finite brain will ever be able to fully and completely answer the questions that we ask about our existence. So if you're frustrated at the fact that you don't have full answers, you will spend the rest of your life frustrated. Part of what God offers us is the ability to embrace mystery and trust that he is still working out his good plan for us. Even when we don't understand it, we can still trust him. The, the lack of understanding, it's everywhere. It's in every belief system. It's in people who claim no belief system. Everybody has to deal with this. And so if you have questions and you're struggling to find answers, really shouldn't surprise you. If people misbehave in Jesus name, really shouldn't surprise you because we're all sinners. Everybody is flawed to one degree or another. We've got to maintain a level of humility and openness and trust when we are confronted with these mysteries that are far deeper than anything that we might, you know, encounter elsewhere. The words of eternal life that Jesus has, they will not fit into nice, neat boxes for us. And and until you embrace that and understand it, then you will end up frustrated in following Jesus. Okay, verse 69, Peter makes another one of his great confessions. This is part of the reason everybody loves Peter because he's always like making these bold statements. You know, last week he was like, who do people say that I am? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter is like, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Just like such confidence, you know? Here he says, we believe and we know that you are the Holy one of God. You know, that, that, that those two words there, I just want to focus on them for a moment, believe and know, because we can get the wrong idea here. We're talking about questions and answers and making sense out of the faith and doubts and all those different things. We can interpret those words as intellectual in meaning. I believe in my brain, Jesus, that you are the Holy one of God. I, in fact, I know it. I've been convinced. I read evidence that demands a verdict. I sat through an apologetics class one time at church. They convinced me. I know that. Okay. We can do that. Those are not the words that Peter actually uses here. In in Greek, it's a little bit different in the language that he originally spoke. So the word we believe, it's the, it's the common word for faith. We have faith, we trust, meaning, yes, I believe it, but I believe it so deeply that I'm willing to trust you on it, that I'm willing to throw my whole life behind you, Jesus. I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm saying I found the answer. I trust you. So I give my life to you. I'm not going to go anywhere else. I'm going to follow you because I believe you're the one that has the answers. It's faith. It's trust that he's talking about here. The second word is a word that we don't have any equivalent for in English. He says, we know that you are the Holy one of God. That word, know the the word that's used in Greek is not an intellectual knowledge. It's not facts and figures. It's not, I read a systematic theology textbook. And so now I understand the word know that he uses here in Greek. It's gnosko. It means to understand because of personal experience. It means to understand in a relational way. What Peter says here is, I know that you're the Holy one of God because I've been with you long enough to see what you said, what you did. And that convinces me. Peter says, look, all these other people that just walked away, they walked away because they don't know what I know. 
They haven't been with you the way that I have been with you. They, they don't have the, the relational, uh, the relation that I do with you, the proximity that I have with you. I understand things about you, Jesus, that they don't because I have been near to you all these many years. Like, let's say you wanted to become the world's greatest student of Amber Sueza. You, you learned everything there. I know there are a couple of people interested. You learned everything there was to know about her. You learned when she was born and where she was born and her maiden name, her favorite dish and her favorite colors. And you learned everything there was to know about her. Can I tell you something? I still know her better than you do. <laughs> I know her in ways that you will never know her. Okay. Because we're married because we've lived together for decades, because I've seen her at her best and she's seen me at my worst. I know what I'm saying here, okay? <laughs> Y'all thought I was gonna say I saw her at her worst. I've never seen her at her worst. Um, so, hear me now. I don't know her intellectually. I don't know about her. I know her because I've been with her. This is what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, listen, they only knew about you intellectually and that was not enough to, to sustain them, Jesus. But I know you because of our relationship, because we've been close to one another. We know, yeah, we know, because we've experienced. It is their experiences with Jesus that give him the faith that he really is the Holy One from God. Can I share a truth with you that you probably don't expect a pastor to say, but here it is anyway. Experiences are often more satisfying than answers. I, I know, right? The pastor, no, like we have the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. I get it. I get it. Don't write me off for heresy just yet. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying that answers don't matter. I'm not saying that there is no absolute truth. There 100% is. What I am saying is that very often we think to ourselves, if I could just get answers, then my soul would be satisfied. Can I tell you, your soul is never satisfied by answers. Your mind can be satisfied with information and answers. Your soul is only ever satisfied by an experience in God's presence. That is the only thing that will truly nourish and fill your soul experiences in Jesus presence will do you far more good than answers you might find on a Google search or in some conversation, even that we might have in my office in which I explain to you the doctrine of whatever in experience in God's presence will do more for you. It'll sustain you until you find the answers that you seek. It'll sustain you when you realize there aren't answers to some of the questions that you seek. It will sustain you and nourish you when Christ's people don't act like Christ's people. One of you is a devil and is going to betray me. It will be there for you. It will do for you what simple answers absolutely can't. So today, what I want to do is close out our time together by taking communion together. And the reason we're going to do this is, A, because the, the text demands it. I mean, Jesus is talking about communion here. But also, communion is really one of the most experiential things that we can do in our faith. 
It is one of those, it's tangible and it engages our senses and it opens our minds to God's presence and the work that he's done on our behalf through Jesus, the Messiah. It's such a special, special way for us to conclude our time together uh, this morning. And my hope is that if you are here and you're struggling, you're doubting, you're questioning, or you're processing past grief and trauma, that this little meal will satisfy and nourish you until you can get to a healthier headspace. So you can get answers or you can get some clarity. So if you didn't receive any communion elements when you came in, our ushers are out and about, just slip your hand up real quick. We'd be happy to make sure you get one if you want to participate because I think this will be a a very um, helpful moment for you to connect with Jesus. So I'll invite you to peel back the top layer here of the communion elements. That'll give you access to the, the bread or cracker is really what it is. I want you to look back, John chapter number six, those verses from the Bread of Life sermon that Jesus shared. You can read all the things that he said there. Some of it's pretty wild. I'm with the other disciples, man. Some of this is hard to make sense out of. But I cling to the promise of verse 55 when Jesus says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, The crowds didn't really get to hear the explanation of this particular sermon. That had to wait for the disciples when they were gathered together in the upper room and they took communion together on the week or the night really that Jesus was betrayed. And in that time, the scriptures tell us that when they were all gathered together in the room, Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. What Jesus is telling us in the moment is that like the crowds were wrong. He wasn't really telling people to eat his skin or anything like that. Instead, he was saying his body was going to be like bread. It's going to be broken. It's going to be chewed up. It's going to be mashed up. And it's going to be ingested for our nourishment and our healing. So as you eat the bread this morning together, may your thoughts be on Jesus, the one who was willing to offer his body so that you could be healed. And may this be a tangible reminder of his great gift to all of us. Jesus, may this bread nourish our souls the way that regular food nourishes our bodies. May it sustain us. May it keep us close to you because of your great love and wonderful gift for us. We pray this in your name. I'll invite you to peel back the second tab. And the scriptures tell us that after they had eaten the bread, Jesus took a cup of new wine and he passed it among his disciples and he said, drink all of it for this wine represents my blood, which is shed for the remission of your sins and it secures the new covenant.
Jesus, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for not holding our sins and our doubts against us. Your sacrifice is a true gift. Your body is true food. Your blood is true drink. It nourishes us. We receive it with gratitude. And God, we offer ourselves to you. Guide us. Keep us close. We love you. Thank you. And praise you in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Amen.